Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller like me, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. Thank you. Thank you, Skylight Books, for being here and supporting me all these years. And thank you all for supporting independent bookstores and being here to hear us talk about our new book. And, oh, and, um, and Shauna, thank you for ha actually helping edit my book. Oh, oh you're welcome. Oh, I, I appreciate it. <laughs> it was quite a chore, but it, I, it was a labor of love. <laughs> His book is like five times the size of our book. So. It, was it was literally like... Can you please help me because I'm sick of looking at this? <laughs> Everyone needs an editor. Writer, writing is rewriting, as I tell my students. Um, so we have a little slideshow to show you to tell the basic story of this club and of why we decided to put this book out. It's not so much a story of DC hardcore per se, but a story about a place in DC that meant a lot to a lot of bands and a lot of people. So. Is it is this light gonna go off? Can we turn this light off? So that's that's the cover, as you know. Um, and who's on the cover? Russell's oh, Yes, this is a band called Underdog from New York, and this picture was taken in 1989, and that's Russell Iglay playing bass on there. That's the cover shot. So the early days of DC Hardcore have been pretty well documented in books and movies that you all may be familiar with. Band in DC, I think, runs from 79, covers from 79 to 85. Dance of Days goes from, I think, the late 70s to 93, right after the development of Riot Girl. And most of these, in most of these, the story ends in 1985. So the people who were involved in early DC hardcore were a few years older than us, and by 1985, DC was experiencing their uh, what they call Revolution Summer, and a lot of the bands were playing like more emo music at that time. But um, us coming up as the second generation, we kind of wanted our hardcore, our version of Minor Threat. So. Um, Hardcore sort of experienced a rebirth in the late 80s, and that's basically what this book covers. And it covers bands like, well, we included some California bands in here, um, since we have a California audience instead. Was from, was they from Orange County? Yeah. Yes, they were. Orange yes. This is them at playing at Safari Club in 1989. Fountain yeah, Valley, actually. Fountain Valley. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so jump in with comments and questions as we go. I want this to be a discussion, and then we can get into a further discussion afterward. And Mike is, you know, a music... Um, Nerd. Yeah. <laughs> you, you could say that. So I know you'll I'll, have a lot of I'll, information. I'll take that. Okay. Here. So that's instead in 89, playing at the club. Um, this is Unbroken. They're from San Diego. That's them in 95, playing there. Um, and this is sort of how all of the hardcore shows began. I did not book this show. Um, the Safari Club existed as an Ethiopian restaurant slash disco before we started booking hardcore shows there. There were also go-go bands that played there on weekend nights. Go-go is a sort of pre-funk, drum-heavy music indigenous to DC. Um, 
these are three local bands that were booked at the club, Swizz, Indian Summer, and Ulysses. That was Nation of Ulysses before they changed their name. Um, I was dating the guitar player in Indian Summer at this time, and they booked the show, and we showed up to the club, and it turned out to be a pay-to-play situation. The owner wanted all the bands to pay $50 to the sound man before they could play. Swizz took off. Um, Ulysses never showed up. Maybe they didn't even know that they were booked on this show. I don't know. In Indian Summer, they were a small new band from Northern California, and they were Northern sort of Virginia. Nor no, yeah, Northern Virginia, and they were sort of discussing whether they were going to pay to play. I mean, they they come all this way, and it was their first show in D.C. proper, so they were deciding whether they're going to play or not. And in that discussion, in the confusion somehow, I thought they'd gone home to get some forgotten equipment and I got left at the club. <laughs> and I ended up, you know, calling my boyfriend all night, getting the answering machine, calling my roommate Pam, no answer. And I ended up sitting at the club until three in the morning, talking to the club owner, chatting with the bartender, and asking what they were doing on the weekends during the day. Because I really wanted something like CBGB's. New York had CBGB's, they had all ages matinees on the weekends. And my friend Pam and I were going up to New York all the time for these shows and we wanted something steady like that, all ages in DC. So by the end of the night, the owner said, okay, take a few dates in November, book some bands and see what you can do. And he also ran a cab company out of the back of the club. <laughs> so he had one of his taxi drivers drive me home for free. I, I lived like 30 miles away and the metro turns off at midnight. So I was 18 and you know. So that's kind of the birth of the club. I went home and I was really excited to tell Pam that we had a place to book shows now and I broke up with that boyfriend. <laughs> Um, so our first show, this is my, the beginning of my show log, um, my inappropriate um, quotation marks, I didn't know how to use those yet, but our, <laughs> our first show was in November, and it was three local bands, not too many people, 69 people, but we were still so stoked. Our second show was Gorilla Biscuits. Swizz, and it was supposed to be In Your Face from New York, but the they canceled and the club owner ended up booking Lucy Brown, who was a local DC band. And it was way bigger than we ever expected. 398 people paid to get in. So there were more than that, because some people snuck in. And this was a show where they were like four hours late. <laughs> they were also four hours late, and everyone waited for Girl Biscuits to show up, because people were so desperate to see them. They had never played in DC before. Um, this flyer on the left someone else made for that show, I don't know who, and we made this flyer on the right. So that was sort of the beginning of everything. Um, my friend Toby, who I, Toby Morris, who I'd gone to high school with in Maryland, had recently moved to New York and he was living with the Gorilla Biscuits guys, so he was the connector between us and a lot of the New York bands. Wasn't that a picture of him? Oh, it's coming up. Um, this is an ad from the newspaper. Uh, there were always mistakes made because there was sort of a, um, a language barrier between us and, and the club owner who was from Ethiopia. So this is pretty funny. The big Swiss Gorilla Biscuits in your face show was listed as Swiss Gorilla Biscuit in your face, both from New York. So there was always something wrong in the ads. And then this one, I think, yeah, it's crucial you screeching weasel. The Blast. Blast played. They had one called, where it said, uh, Screaming Weasels. Oh, yeah, mm -hmm. Screaming Weasels was listed instead of Screeching Weasel from Chicago. Um, there were three different sets of promoters in this club's time period. This book covers the 10 years that it hosted hardcore shows. 
me and my roommate and best friend Pam hosted show, or booked shows from 88 to 90, and then there was a guy named John Cornerstone who booked shows from 89 to 91. He had a record label and a fanzine as well. And then there were three uh, promoters who booked shows in the later 90s. And sometime in those late 90s, the club's name changed from Safari to Chamber of Sound. And also, Martin introduced Rich and I in 95. So there's a little love story in here. So. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so he had come to all my shows but I never met him until much later in 95 so we'd been in the same room hundreds of times <laughs> before um, so whenever we booked shows our flyers always said no scene zine presents and that was sort of just an evolution out of our zine no scene zine <laughs> Why, and was it, why was it called No Scene Zine? Because I grew up in Southern Maryland in the middle of nowhere and we had no scene. <laughs> so, and I started it when I was 16 in high school. So you can see the things that were on my mind in the 80s. <laughs> um, here's a picture of Token Entry with Toby Morris, who now sings for H2O. And he was the one who connected us with a lot of those New York fans. This is him, pre-tattoos, if any of you know him, what he looks like now. And that was Chuck, um, one of the bouncers. <laughs> we call him Big Chuck. Big Chuck. There's some stories about him in the book. Um, this is a band called In Your Face. And Toby's in the background there on the left, too. This is Absolution. They were also from New York. Gavin went on to start a band called Burn. And the second set of promoters, John Cornerstone and Carl Hedgepath. Yep. Um, Hi, Carl. Yeah, so John had Cornerstone Productions. He put out Initial Reaction, local band. Yep, local DC band. So this was like their era. They, they kind of picked up after you and Pam got fed up with the Hailey, the owner. <laughs> yeah, we had a lot of problems with the club owner. And we were teenagers. Um, we didn't work with contracts. Everything was word of mouth and handshake. and. Once the owner saw that he could start making money off of shows, he demanded you know more and more from the door, and things got really stressful and complicated. And we moved our last two shows to a club called the Barbecue Iguana, mm -hmm. and then John sort of picked up from there. And then Pam was going to school, and I was going to school, and wrapped up in a stupid boyfriend. So <laughs> I wasn't paying attention to shows anymore. This is another example of one of John's shows. Super Touch, Crack. They were from Baltimore. Agent 86. This is initial reaction. Yep, that's uh, one of John's shows. Um, I guess they were from Virginia, like Northern Virginia, but they were local. They played a lot of the Safari Club shows. Is, is Seth here? Seth Ford Young on the left there. Yeah, he's an LA guy now. Yeah. And this is when the club changed names to Chamber of Sound. They hosted a lot of hip hop shows. The club closed down for a few years after John stopped booking shows there. Yeah. And then it opened up later with different owners, and it was um, more like a hip-hop club. They also did go-go shows. And yeah. then our friend Martin used to go to the uh, hip-hop shows there, and he knew the history of the Safari Club, so he kind of wanted to recreate that, started booking hardcore shows there again. And as you can see, it wasn't much to look at. It was windowless, really hot. That roll-up gate was how bands loaded in and out. There was a door on the left. Um, and at the time, DC in the 80s was not a very nice place. It was the murder capital of the world at the time. Our mayor was caught smoking crack. And this was in Chinatown, which um, it now is, of course, totally gentrified. But at 
the time it was not the best neighborhood. Band called Bloodlet, played in the later years. Battery, DC band. This was actually the show, um, after me and Shauna met, do you want to tell the story of... Uh, 95. Like how Martin ran into you at, up against the wall at clothing store? It's <laughs> not important. <laughs> you, you'll read about it in the book. Right. I was so, working at a hip-hop clothing store and Martin sort of unearthed me. Um, but after we reconnected, I told her, oh, they're doing shows at the Safari Club again. And you were, you were surprised. You were like, I had no idea. And yeah. Then I said you should come to a show, and this was the show that I brought yeah, you to. Yeah, so he invited me to the show, and I was amazed that it, it looked similar to how it did in the 80s, but what was different was there were 50, probably 50% 50 of the audience was women, which was so different from when I was going to shows, there were maybe five. Um, and then also everyone had a camera, which in the 80s very few people did. So that was cool to see. And Shelter, I don't know if you're familiar with that band, but the, their first show was at the Safari Club. They came down with Judge and just played a couple songs. And then a few years later, Better Than a Thousand, Ray Capo's other band's first show was at the Safari Club. And they documented it with a, their t-shirt. <laughs> and Martin, being into hip-hop, he started booking uh, like rap shows. So KRS-One played there. Yeah. And I think Tribe Called Quest was booked there, but he ended up moving that to a bigger venue. And these are just some flyers to show you some of the diversity of shows that were held there. The Toasters, that's a ska show. The Undead is um, Bobby Steele from the Misfits band, and Neurosis. You can also see it's sort of an evolution in um, design, too, like the early Flyers are all the cut and paste, punk style, and then graffiti style, that's underdog, American Standard and Fury, those the are from the 80s. The guy who did this flyer on the right did the cover Yes, uh, logo. Kyle Style, he was our resident graffiti artist, flyer maker, and then um, I guess people were using Quark and Illustrator. <laughs> Photoshop was invented. Came around. <laughs> Things got a lot more legible. <laughs> or boring, however you want to look at it. Um, Josta14 is Jamie from Hatebreeds. I'm from Virginia Beach. I didn't know we had hardcore. Oh, see? <laughs> you had a scene. I love it. Vegan food will be sold. Um, this is a band called Immoral Discipline, a local DC band, but this is mostly just for reference to kind of show you where the stage was and that there was a disco ball that got kicked a lot um, <laughs> when people were stage diving. And then this is what the club looked like later. It burned down in 1998 under some mysterious circumstances. There are a bunch of stories in the book. Um, and Rich and I went back in 2012 and crawled under a fence to take these photos <laughs> with a cop. He yeah, said it was okay. We were escorted by a friend. <laughs> but that's where the stage was right there. Yeah. So that's the end. That was the end of the club. And now it's, um, it was recently bought. I mean, it's just a facade that's left, and they're building condos Aww. on top of it. Yes. Yeah. And in 1981, I think it was, it was the first 
PETA protest was out front because it yeah. used to be a... It was a chicken market. Chicken market. Yeah. So it was the site of a, the a first factory. PETA protest, which okay. is documented in the Washington Post. Yes? Can you talk about how you were able to get all these photos and flyers? Like, how hard was it to amass everything? Yeah. And who gave them to you? And did you have some yourself? We, I mean, I kept some things, but not nearly enough for a book. And we really just relied on our community for that. We put the word out on Facebook and on websites and people started sending us stuff and then we this we worked on this for six and a half years it's been in the works when we first started it um, the Washington Post got wind of it we'd put up a website but we hadn't really announced it to anyone and they wrote a story about the 30th anniversary of the Wilson Center which is like a legendary community center that hosts a lot of punk shows and in that story they mentioned that we were working on a book and then at first we thought it was just going to be a book for like 20 of our friends right. um, and then when the Washington Post mentioned it we got a thousand emails in one day from people all yep. over and I was like wow I didn't know anyone was interested <laughs> so and you can probably speak to that too with your book you've probably yeah, I, had I contributions mean, from lots of yeah people. I mean well my book is uh, called triple x fanzine 1983 to 88 and basically I hate doing that it's like, thank you okay so yeah I know but I'm not gonna like we can share. So, yeah, I mean, I mean, basically, it was a zine I did that was run out of the Boston area, and you know, it, it definitely had some sort of prominence in the hardcore scene. And what, what, what I thought was actually very interesting about it was it, it was sort of very much of a second generation fanzine. It sort of documented, you know, by the time I started doing it, all the sort of signposts were already there. Um, we already had like classic fanzines like Slash or Ripper or Forced Exposure, um, and we all or, or Glenn Friedman's My Rules, and you know bands had already begun touring. And in Boston, we already had, we already had a great scene to begin with. Um, so it was just sort of you know for me it was a way of being a part of it. You know, it's, it's like if you're, if you're not going to if you're not going to start a band start a zine, mm -hmm. put on shows. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's kind of just what you did. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so the, so the zine sort of ran six, it ran six years, I did 20 issues. Um, and I guess it was, it was resonant enough, you know, for the next, God, like, you know, 25 years later, where people, you know, people would come up to me and be like, hey, I really love, you know, I really love that issue with the Babraids on the cover, or I love that issue with Sam Hain on the cover, mm -hmm. or the Cro-Mags on the cover. And it, you know, it was it was sort of one of those things. I was just like, yeah, cool, you know, great, done, you know, done. And um, it hit a point where I was approached by a record label in Boston um, called Bridge Nine, and it's it's a, you know it's a great Boston hardcore label, and it's from where literally from where I grew up. Like my sister lives a mile away, my parents live like you know three miles away, um, and literally. You know, the owner is a guy named Chris Wren. He's like, I'd, I'd really like to do a book version of, of your zine. I'm like, okay, so we started sending stuff back and forth. And we started sketching out a basic idea for what it was going to be. And, um, you know, at first, at first the idea was like, oh, well, maybe we'll collect all 20 issues. Well, uh, nobody should have to read that. <laughs> like, it's just too much. Um, and we decided to sort of do a greatest hits, a greatest hits of, of the 20 issues. Um, and then Chris, who was doing another book based around a um, New York fanzine called Schism, 
sort of got hit, hit with a cease and desist by a photographer mm -hmm. um, who contributed photos to the schism book. So the, pro the project sort of languished for a few years. There were a couple of false starts. Um, Revelation Records in Huntington Beach, who you know are old friends of mine and a really great, you know, great and historically important label, uh, were interested in doing a book version. And I needed a I needed a layout and design guy because I can't do that. Um, and you know, I, I so it sort of sat for another year or so. Um, I reached out to Chris again at a certain point when I was like looking at thousands of photographs. I guess I'm kind of a hoarder. <laughs> like, like not that bad. Like, it's, you know, organized hoarder. I have a store. Well, yeah, I was I have a storage space. <laughs> um, and I, I called. You know, I was kind of looking at the stuff, going, this can either this can either sit in my you know storage space, or we can actually you know see if there's a book here. So I called Chris up and he was like, yeah, let, 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 let's, you know, let's get to it. So basically we were like, yeah, it'll be, you know, 130, 140 pages, sort of greatest hits, maybe some, you know, some essays and all that. And really that's kind of when the journey began because it, it turned into, it didn't turn into that book in the, you know, at the end. Um, what we said was going to take six, seven, eight months. Three and a half years. <laughs> um, but the great part of that was, in addition to the stuff I had, you know, speaking, speaking to what we were talking about before, um, you know, I, was, I reached out to just old friends, people from the community, um, and, you know, I had a lot of stuff. Other people, including um, a guy named Al Quint, who's sort of a legendary sort of fanzine guy who does, who does a zine called Suburban Voice. Um, he, you know, he helped me out a little bit, um, and literally, as just as we, as I reached out, you know, just to old friends, you know, stuff started really coming in. So all of a sudden, I have, I have like, you know, there's the there's the interviews we're gonna there are the interviews that we're gonna sort of configure, you know, the book around. But here's essays I was writing. I started interviewing um, people for for sort of like then and now commentary, and you know. As as time went on, and there were some people, you know, some people who were like immediate, immediate to get in. They're like, you know, um, hit up hit up Henry Rollins, who took all of ninety minutes to get back to me. <laughs> like it was it was yeah, it was like literally like, did I catch you on a slow day? <laughs> um, and then there's people people who I've known for you know very very closely for years, who took to you know who took upwards of like two and a half years. To gamble. I mean, and these are people. These are people like I talk to regularly. We had that experience. Too. Yeah. You just never. And then I don't know if you had this experience, but since the book has come out, people have sent more stuff. Oh yeah. <laughs> like, like where were you six years ago? Like, like, we have enough for the uh, the second issue already. <laughs> well, it was great. It was. It was like at the, at the end of things for, for for me. Um, literally, I'm done, and all of a sudden, like, there's a Boston area photographer named Bruce Rhodes. Who doc, you know, he was sort of the Glenn, the Glenn Friedman of the Boston scene, and he documented a lot of the, you know, early, early to sort of mid '80s, um, you know, hardcore, hardcore, hardcore shows, and um, all of a sudden we're done with the book, and I get this call, hey, it's Bruce Rhodes. I'm like, where the hell have you been? <laughs> so, so I think we're all, th this way. I think we're all hoping for uh, second editions of our books. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. Yeah. Do you all have questions? Yeah. Yes. I have a question. The, um, 
I'm curious, I mean, it's, it's an amazing book to look through. It's so interesting that the punk scene, like a really notable punk scene grew out of Washington, D.C., which is so like, the, the whole notion of all that. But yeah. Does it, does that, is that punk scene still sort of alive, for lack of a better word, there? Is it, has it moved to a different location? Yeah, or? yeah, there's still a thriving scene. I mean, I, I think, like, you know, as new generations come up, they kind of reconfigure the scene the way that they need to, but they're, they're, we're on the, what, third or fourth wave of hardcore yeah. in D.C.? Fifth well, or sixth. I think, I think what's interesting that's happened in D.C. is the, you know, the, the Discord Records, which was centered around, you know, that first sort of group of DC guys, mm -hmm. um, you know, for the longest time they were putting out, you know, sort of, you know, this person's next band or, you know, like Guy from Rites of Spring, you know, oh, he's in Fugazi. Mm -hmm. um, you know, Mark Sullivan, who was in the Teen Idols, um, you know, here's, King, here's, here's the Kingface record. Mm -hmm. um, you know, Sean, who was in, Sean, who, Sean uh, Brown, who was in Dag Nasty. Here's a Swizz record. And, you know, I think what's happened in D.C. that's really interesting is that whole sort of the generations of sort of founding fathers have sort of petered out. Mm -hmm. And, you know... New people have... Yeah, new people They also gave us a template, place. a DIY template. I mean, Discord Records was made up of a few friends who were, like, gluing together seven-inch seven mm -hmm. covers themselves and distributing things themselves and... That taught us that we could do things ourselves too. Mm -hmm. We can do our own cut and paste fanzines and give them out at shows or book shows, being teenagers not really knowing what we were doing. So they created a template that's been copied over and over, not just in DC but yeah. worldwide. World, worldwide, and I think it, I think it's still you know you still see fanzines. Yeah. Uh, you still see bands you know doing it sort of doing it the same way, mm -hmm. which is you know I for um, I, I've been working for record companies for the past. 23 years and to me that's sort of like rock has almost like become a DIY movement mm. you know and, and bands have to sort of part of I think a band you know being successful is actually like learning the ropes and doing it themselves yeah yeah you notice and, and, that and, about and, a band right yeah, when they've taken initiative yeah and, and that's that to me that that way of doing things really goes back to those sort of early days yeah I was very happy to see you all bringing your punk t-shirts. <laughs> <laughs> so I was wondering if you would each say a word about your t-shirt. Oh. Um. <laughs> um, this says Ride Fast, Live Slow, and it's a Tim Berry shirt. I don't know who's familiar with Tim Berry, but he used to sing for a band called Avail, which I booked at Safari Club, and now he has a solo acoustic folk career. And, so this is one of his shirts. So it's kind of homage. He's a train hopper. Ride fast, live slow. You know, ride the trains, but live life at a nice slow pace where you can enjoy things. So I'm a big fan of his work. And this was my band in D.C. Teamster. Kind of a new school band. Like we were around in 2012. Yeah. So part of that newer generation. And they're still going, even though I had to move back to California. Done. <laughs> And this uh, SSD Sastra, SSD Control, who were a band that were insanely significant in my life, um, they were basically, they were Boston's band. They were the band that sort of 
They had a straight. Well, actually, they were very certain. The, the founding member of the band was a guy named Al Barrill, mm -hmm. who was very close with actually, you know, Ian McKay and some DC of the original crew. DC guys. Yeah. And you know, DC had the phenomenon of straight edge. And you know, we living in Boston, we had, you know. We from, we're from a colder, sort of more hard scrabble environment. <laughs> we had to step that up, you know. And there's and there's great legends about like SSD controls playing. Um, you know, they're slapping beers out of people's hands. <laughs> they're going through clubs with flashlights. You know, <laughs> some of that was true. So a lot of that wasn't. Like militants. Yeah. And, but you know, for for me, um, you know, Al and SSD created the Boston scene, and that you know, and when I you know when I first Heard the re they had a record in 1980 that came out in 1982 called "The Kids Will Have Their Say," and um, when I heard that record, it was like it was empowering. It was literally, you can do this. You can express yourself. You can you can recreate and reshape your world. Mm. And if there was ever you know ever something that was like just important and significant to my life, to my scene, um, you know, and I and I think to music itself, you know, to to music itself, you know, trickling out to now, um, SSD was sort of the foundation in Boston. Thank you. Good question. Is there, a, is there a, um, an interview that stands out when you're working on your book? Like anything interesting? Some funny ones. A lot of our interviews actually got lost because we had a computer that we had a, oh, a B and E. Yeah, yeah, we did have a computer stolen with so, some stuff that wasn't backed up. We so had great times. We like, had to start over at some point. <laughs> like our first interview was actually the guys from um, Rival Schools. They were playing in DC. Walter Schreifels, who'd been in Gorilla Biscuits, and we had a, an extensive and interview. And Sammy, with who was in Gorilla Biscuits, Youth yeah. Day, and all those bands. So we we were just like, we should go and interview these guys because they they were like one of the first big shows at the mm -hmm. Safari Club, and. Um, so that was like we our partial interviews left. Yeah, but uh, I thought that was exciting just because it kind of yeah. set the pace and the energy of like, you know, like getting the, this book started. And yeah, it was we, fun. yeah, we just kind of interviewed people backstage and in alleys and after shows as much as we could over the years. I have a question for Mike. Mm. First of all, I guess I'm probably the only person who saw all the <laughs> oh my! My is the singer of a band called Apology. I was a big kid, uh, so I probably started reading uh, I'll Blacks when I was like 12 or 13. Oh, awesome. Uh, Thank you. And um, it was just like you're saying about SSD, you know, uh, I really enjoyed the writing and reading it. You were like, everything you realize you could do it yourself. Thank you. And it was around the time I started going to shows, so it encouraged me to do that. Because it was kind of a scary thing, you know, at first. Um, so I just wanted to ask, like you said, you don't do layout and stuff yourself. Just about the actual fanzine, like how did you do it, you know, physically, and what kind of, do you remember like what the distribution was yeah. generally? Stuff like that. I, mean, I mean, as far as the layout, it was figured out, <laughs> which means cut and paste, you know, in the early, in the early issues, which we were, you know, we reprint a lot of like double page spreads. You see how just sort of, how raw and how rough shot that was. And it was just it was just a process of figuring out like sh you know shrink typewriter font like who how do I maximize I'll shrink the typewriter font it'll look cool. Um, did you use the rub on letters? Yeah, sure did. Yeah. <laughs> be be because people use us for, for flyers. Yeah. 
you know so it was sort of it was sort of this this communal knowledge yeah um you know but i mean we also you know like oh i can half tone photographs and they won't look like black blobs <laughs> that's cool um and it just you know as as time sort of went on you know you just sort of you just sort of like perfected your your, your you know rubber cement <laughs> rub on letters shrunken typewriter font you know whatever looked cool um I'm sorry, what was your, se your second question was? Well, like, do you remember about distribution? Oh, sure. Um, initially, and again, this, this, this harkens back to the notion of community. Um, my friend Al Quint, who had a zine called Suburban Punk, which later became Suburban Voice, he, he was selling his zine at local record stores on consignment, which means, you know, you brought some in, they'd sell them, you know, they'd take their little cut, they'd, they'd pay you the money. I mean, I was just I was just happy to have them like in Newberry Comics, you know, in in you know the Salem Record Exchange, um, and you know, luckily I th you know at the time there was also a really amazing ind independent distribution network. So as the zine grew, I mean, I was also selling I was also selling zines at shows, and you know there's a there's a very funny uh, funny thing I remember at the very first show. Um, Actually, the very, sorry, the very first issue that the very you know the very first issue, I I got out in time for a Dead Kennedy show in Waltham, Mass. As it turns out, um, one of because I um, as it turns out, one of the people who bought it was um, a guy from that area, named you know who's now known, known as Rob Zombie, <laughs> and you know and ultimately like you know speaking speaking of DIY. Um, that's a band that sort of would advertise in my zine, you know, release, you know, recorded and released their own records, and sort of grew and you know grew into what they did. Um, but yeah, as, I mean, as time went by, like you know, distributors like Rough Trade, uh, Systematic, um, you know, Mordam, which were all you know were all thriving sort of sort of the, the bloodline of the underground. Um, they would you know they would carry zines. And you know, so I would send 200, you know, 200 here, 300 there, 150 there, um, and there were also re record stores um, that would carry zines. And um, you know, m like most importantly out here, uh, there was a store in Long Beach uh, called Zeds, and Zeds was Zeds was like sort of the, the you know the key store you know for for basically Southern, in my mind at least for Southern California, and you know in. In tons of independent, you know, records. Um, just you know, everything, everything that was sort of happening in this world at that time sort of passed through there. And I still hear a lot of people coming back to me, going, "Oh, I, I, I picked up that issue at Zed's." <laughs> you know, more often not. And I've, I've, you know, basically developed friendships with people, um, you know, because of things like that. And that's how we sort of communicated and got involved with each other. Well, hopefully it does inspire people to take the reins and realize they can do it themselves. Originally it just started as something that we wanted to do for our community. We wanted to document a space and a time that meant a lot to us and our friends. 
And if that just meant a yearbook for 20 people, then that's what it was. But ultimately, hopefully, if it inspires the next generation <laughs> to take things into their own hands, that's awesome too. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it's that, and also some of the stuff like just needs to be preserved. Mm -hmm. You know, we're, we're also talking we're also talking about a culture that's now 25, 30 years old, and having that sort of documentation and having that sort of like here's at least one sort of impression of how it was mm. and you know maybe you'll get something out of it maybe you'll be inspired by it um, maybe you know you'll take the maybe somebody will take the lessons of that and carry it into their own lives and you know reshape their own world yeah and something I said in the introduction was um, what did I say <laughs> um, that what inspired us was that a lot of the stories that were coming out ended in 85 mm -hmm. and so we really didn't see ourselves represented and and it's great that that stuff is preserved and it needs to be but there was something that came after so it was important for us just to be a part of the worldwide conversation of punk rock we're just one of many books on the shelves now but we wanted to have that little boy. And actually, what's, what's really interesting is you, my book sort of dovetails into your book. Mm -hmm. Like, like my, my, I ended my thing around 1988. Yeah. And that's when... Sure. That's pick up. Yeah. Yeah, so there's a little teeny bit of overlap, I think, yeah. in our books, but it spans 15 years. And it's interesting because, I mean, there's other books that sort of harken back, like, the, you know, the Touch and Go, Tesco V's Touch and Go book, mm -hmm. American Hardcore. Um, we got, you know, for L.A., we got the Neutron Bomb. Yeah. Um, please kill me. Yeah, please kill me. Yeah. Or you know, the the, the books from the, the two the two main members of the Chromags. Mm -hmm. You know, all sort of like tells all sort of like start encompassing the story. Mm -hmm. And it's 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 pretty interesting. You know, it's it's it's, it's just cool now. You know, now to go. Okay, we're everybody's starting to tell the story. Because no, no, no one person can tell it. No. And that story contradicts itself all the time. Yeah. yeah. And, and I kind of love that's that. The, and that's the and, beauty of it. In our book, it's an oral history. So we just interviewed people. We didn't write anything. I'm not a writer. <laughs> so we I just, wrote an introduction. So we just like interviewed a bunch of people, and people would tell one story, and then the next guy would tell the same story yeah. a different way so, and remember it differently. And we wouldn't and correct. We wouldn't correct it. We would just put both in, and, yeah. Yeah. and yeah. you decide. <laughs> yeah. Memory is tricky. Nope. Any last questions? Whoever asks the question wins a fanzine. <laughs> Bonnie. Um, I wanted to ask Sean, you talked about women in the scene. Women in the scene. Well, there weren't many when I was going to shows, but there were some. And especially in the early years of Discord, there were bands like Fire Party, um, Amy Pickering. There were people like Cynthia Conley documenting the scene. Um, so I did have some elders, so to speak, to look up to. But in the hardcore scene, it was a mostly male-dominated scene. But my best friend Pam and I were the ones booking the shows in DC at this time. So I did have a, a girlfriend that I experienced all of this with and built this community in this yeah. club with. Um, I, before I met her, actually, when I was in high school, all of my friends were boys, and I really wished for a girlfriend to go to shows with. <laughs> and Toby, um, who I mentioned earlier, had met Pam. She had moved to Maryland from St. Louis. She was she had done a punk radio show 
at her college station, and she just moved to Maryland, and Toby introduced us, so I always say that he gave me my first girlfriend. Um, and then, you know, I, things kind of ran from there. We did a zine together, we booked shows together, and, and she was my pal. But. Yeah, it's funny. I mean, even you know, as I was going through my book, um, you know, one, one of my biggest criticisms of the book is probably there's, there's not a lot of women. But there weren't a lot of women in bands at that point. Mm-hmm. Now, it's very interesting. A friend of mine pointed this out pretty recently. Um, yes, there are there are not a lot of women represented represented as musicians. There are a lot of women represented as photographers, documentarians. Yeah, and, yeah, and, and, yeah doc, exactly. Yeah. And I th- I think that probably all but one or two of the people who contributed photos to my book are female. Oh. And, and I think it is changing. Like I said, I went back to the club with Rich in 95 and was happy to see that 50% of the audience mm-hmm. was women, which was kind of blew my mind. It was exciting. Are we ready to, to stop? Thank you all for coming. I also have... Um, I also have copies of, of a zine I did that uh, previews my book, which will be out in November. So if, if you want one, just come up and grab one. If you want a zine, come up and, come up and bug me. <laughs> Thank you so much. Awesome. Thank you. You're most welcome. Thank you very much. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by. And we hope to see you soon.